This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. There have been plenty of world-class center backs in the history of the United States women's national team, and Becky Sauerbrunn is certainly among them. I'm Jeff Kasuf, and this is the latest episode of Kickin' Back, the podcast which brings you reflective conversations with the sport's top personalities and looks back at some of the most important moments in their careers. Becky has long been an established member of the United States national team and a picture of consistency in the pro game. She is the four-time National Women's Soccer League Defender of the Year, including each of the first three seasons of the league's existence from 2013 to 2015, when she played for FC Kansas City, and oh, by the way, won a pair of championships with them. It wasn't long before that, however, that she faced multiple career crossroads. She graduated college during that long gap between professional leagues in the United States, and she was not yet an established player with the senior national team. It was her time in the now-defunct WPS, that is, Women's Professional Soccer, which got her back into the national team mix, and her career has been on an upward trajectory since. In this podcast, we discuss those tenuous years, her rise within the national team, which included emergency duty in the 2011 World Cup semifinal, the importance of a pro league, winning the 2015 and 2019 World Cups, and much more. I am pumped to bring you this conversation and thankful to Becky for sharing her thoughts. Please go ahead and rate and review this podcast with those five stars on your favorite listening platform so that more people can discover it and enjoy it just as you are about to do. It helps us tell these stories and it gets it out to more people. I'm Jeff Kasuf and this is Kicking Back with Becky Zalba. All right, so here with Becky Sauerbrunn, U.S. Women's National Team defender and uh, newly now Portland Thorns FC defender. Becky, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for, for coming on. Um, how, how are you holding up? I mean, obviously we're, we're recording here uh, during the sort of self-isolation days for everybody. I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, definitely scary times. Uh, the coronavirus has impacted my family. I've had someone very close to me contract it luckily he seems to be out of the worst of it but it's it's definitely a scary time right now so I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing so I'm self-isolating and I'm, I'm doing okay with the self-isolation uh but yeah it's, it's just uh unprecedented times yeah yeah well I'm glad that 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 person's doing better and, and that you're you're doing well um what what are you doing to kind of pass the time here. I know you're a big reader. Are you, you're kind of a big gamer. Is that, is that accurate? Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, um, I game, I definitely read a lot. Uh, I find creative ways to work out, whether that's, you know, putting books inside a duffel bag and getting a lift in that way or juggling in tight spaces, but I've been trying to stay busy. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What's on the, uh, what's the book and, and game of choice at the moment? Game of choice right now is the Witcher. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you've seen the Netflix series, but they uh, have a pretty good video game franchise. I've been playing that. And then the books, it's just a huge science fiction series called The Expanse. I'm okay. on like book four right now, and they're all like a brick. So they're they're going to take some time to get through. Well, those are good bricks for, for working out with then when you throw them in the duffel bag. Too. Exactly. The dual finish, purpose. Finish the book and then work out with it. <laughs> um, so I was going to ask you what training looks like. Is that, I mean, I imagine you have some sort of traditional type of weights in that at home, right? That's kind of mixing in what you can and what you have there. I have, I don't actually have traditional weights. That's something that I've tried ordering, but it seems like everyone has that same idea. So they're right. being delivered in a month. Um, oh, but there's wow. definitely things that you can create creative with as far as weights. I luckily have a, a bike here. So I bike quite a bit. Um, I've also got different like bands uh, to do resistance training. Uh, I found a little patch of grass that I can go to and, and kick the ball around. And then there's plenty of running to do. So yeah. I've been doing those things. Yeah, everybody, I guess maybe everybody will come out fit. I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting kind of, I, I heard one theory from a lot of the 
like trainers like Tom Beyer and um, a few others I spoke with, and they thought maybe everybody, I don't know if this would carry to the pro and international level, but a lot of youth players maybe will come out of this a lot more technical because they just kind of have to be on the ball all the time. Is that like, what does it look like for a defender? I mean, someone forward maybe can say, I'm just going to go out and shoot at a goal in the backyard, but I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, what you need. Well, I think now, nowadays, every position on the field is required uh, to be able to do a lot of those skill sets. And so okay. even if I am a defender, I can go to a goal and shoot around. But there are definitely a lot of things that I can do by myself that are defender-related. Obviously, it helps to have somebody. I luckily have my boyfriend that lives with me, so he can act as the forward as I work on some some defensive positioning. Right. Nice. Nice. Um, well, you know, this podcast and, and kind of we're getting this started, a big goal of it is uh, meant to be kind of kicking back, looking at the bigger picture. Um, you know, one of those big picture updates for you, obviously, recently um, with something that, I don't know, from, from a news perspective, feels like ages and years ago already. But, um, you know, with only about a month ago, a month and a half ago, that the trade from, from Utah Royals to Portland uh, went through and, and happened, um, you know, for you, you've talked about a little bit of, of having sort of a home base in Portland for a while and, and now being able to actually play there and, and actually be there. Um, a little bit of a work balance, work-life balance for you, you're, you're hoping? I, I guess you, you haven't really been able to see what that looks like at the moment, but um, what's yeah, ho- it like? Hopefully that'll work out. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really rare in a professional's life that you get to play in the city that you also live in. And I've been in Portland now for five years. I have a home here. Uh, I've been with my boyfriend for 14 years and we've done 10 of that uh, with distance because we met in college and then I got drafted and I've been playing soccer in all these different cities. And so to be able to be around him and my cat, like, honestly, it's just nice to, to be home and get to play. And it's not something that a lot of people get to do. So when the chance arose, I definitely took it. Yeah. And I think people don't probably realize that um, obviously as a pro athlete, you're traveling, but especially maybe in a World Cup year, um, you know, I think at some point last year, someone said a number to me. It was like it was over half the year in terms of days, actual days that you're on the road, right? Oh, easily. Yeah. And a World Cup year in particular, I, I, I maybe maybe spent an accumulation of four or five weeks in Portland here at my home. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, so yeah, hopefully uh, now you're getting sort of a hundred percent home time at the moment. So um, at the moment. Yeah. So I'm sure you're looking forward to getting into Providence park uh, at some point here soon in, in an actual thorns Jersey and, and debut in there. I am, but they've kept me very busy. We've been doing a lot of zoom meetings and just virtual <laughs> meetings. I've had a one-on-one uh, emails. I've been analyzing games and, so I've been kept busy, that's for sure. Yeah, Mark was talking about the uh, – he's basically giving out, like, homework assignments of sorts for tactics and and everything. Oh, yes. Yeah? Oh, nice. yes. Uh-huh. Nice. Is he uh, – what's that – how's that compared to – I know Vlatko is a, a film-crazy guy. Is that uh, similar for, for Mark, do you think, So in, in the early days? or? It, it seems like it. He definitely yeah. seems like a guy well, – especially because, for me, I am new to the program, and I think I wanted to get a better understanding of, like, defensive principles and how he wants to play. Mm-hmm. And so I had asked him very specific questions, and so he sent me a lot of clips of chances that they gave up, goals that they gave up, building out of the back. And so it was really me sometimes being like, can you send me stuff? Can we talk about this? Um, but, yeah, he seems to really like the film. He really seems to be like a culture guy, so we've talked a lot about culture. So, yeah, so far so good. Nice, nice. So you're a, you said ten years in Portland now. Is that is that what you said? Uh, five years in Portland. Oh, five years Portland, in Portland. Ten, ten years distance. Ten years distance. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, well, what's what's your favorite part about the uh, the area? I got out there for a vacation not long ago, and it was we got to like Cannon Beach was beautiful. The gorge the other way was was really nice. Uh, what what's what's the spot in Portland or in the state? I guess for you. My my home. That's, that's the place <laughs> that I like to visit. Fair uh, enough. No, I mean I lived on the west, the northwest side for a little bit, so I was close to the Pearl and the Alphabet, and so you're kind of in the busy, busier part of the city. Um, I'm now in the Northeast, and so it's a little bit more suburban, but um, still a lot of great places to walk to for like coffee, food. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's a great city. Nice. Um, so the other big thing that's kind of timely is is obviously the uh, the Olympic delay. 
basically a full year delay now uh, or postponement for the Olympics. I'm wondering for you, uh, maybe specific to you and even just kind of players at large um, and, and players on the U.S., is there, you know, there's a lot of unknowns right now, obviously, in terms of when you get back to even training together. But how are you kind of viewing that early days in terms of how to approach that delay and, and what it might mean? I've really just been kind of rolling with the punches. And so I'm, I'm carrying on as if I have every chance of making that, that Olympic roster, even though it's a year, a year out. And so that's specific to me. I, I want to be on that team. And so I'm going to train and hopefully perform as such whenever programming starts back up. I think the actual postponement of the Olympics is the right thing to do. And so when that announcement came out from the IOC, I was actually very appreciative. Because uh, I think it, it would just have been wildly unfair to try to push to have the Olympics in July of this year, especially with such so many unknowns surrounding the virus, so many teams having not even qualified yet uh, or athletes qualified yet and like forcing them to train. So there are just so many things that were putting people at risk. And so I, I'm glad that it's a year out. Um, and so I, I, I think the team as well, I don't want to speak for them, but I feel like everyone is appreciative that we're not putting ourselves or anyone at risk. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it seemed inevitable from a pretty early stage that that, that was going to be the only decision that they could make, the IOC. Um, is I'm wondering, I've been kind of theorizing this, but I know a lot of players have talked certainly from 15 to 16, I guess even 11 and 12, but, um, you know, 15 and 16, and now this winning the 2019 World Cup going into 2020 about kind of the, the demand on the body to even do that and the, the lack of rest. Uh, is there maybe kind of a hidden positive to the idea that, you know, th- that seemed to be kind of that one big burden on a World Cup champ of, of going into the Olympics, that you've actually got that extra year now and some forced rest almost? Yeah, I'm sure Blacko is very excited for that extra <laughs> year. I think that gives him a lot more opportunity to kind of uh, tweak and play with things and um I also think it's great for us. It was very difficult going from 2015 into 2016 because we had that 10-game victory tour in 2015, which we were just cramming in at the end of the year. So we didn't get as much rest as we wanted to going into 2016. And I'm not going to say that's the reason why we didn't win 2016. A lot of reasons went into why we didn't win 2016. But I think if we had been a little bit more fresher, um, certainly it would have helped. Yeah. Yeah, that victory tour went in the – mid-December as I recall that's oh yeah it was very difficult we were all just kind of like well we have another game in two days okay let's go that was the uh that was a learning experience applied to 2019 I'm sure with uh ending in in early October for that victory tour um very much so well I wanted to talk about some of these these world cups and I think um you know a lot of fans, I think, certainly nowadays, 2015 got a lot of fans into, I'd say, the women's national team and maybe the sport in general. And, and I think if they, you know, people who weren't on board by 15, I think 19, um, you know, kind of further caught the attention of, of so many people. But, um, you know, th- there's a lot that happened before those World Cups, obviously. And, and even for yourself, the 2011 World Cup and even coming onto the scene in those years before that, um, you know, I think I think maybe even a lot of newer fans don't totally realize that those World Cups existed and happened. Even um, you know, for you, the, the we've talked about this a little bit, I think, in, in years back. But um, you know, 2011, the, from a team perspective, getting so close to winning and, and coming up short in the final, um, the, the dramatic quarterfinal. You know, and I think that quarterfinal gets talked about a lot, but. It also, from your perspective, sets up the semifinal. And I was curious, um, you know, from a player's perspective, um, I guess for those not familiar, you know, Rachel Bueller gets sent off in the quarterfinal against Brazil. And, and obviously everything that happens with, you know, the, the huge equalizer in the 122nd minute um, from Abby Wambach. Um, so, so semifinal comes around and you're called to step into that center back role. Um you know, not cold, but you hadn't you hadn't played in the quarter, right? I'm not sure about game by game, but not um, at all. Yeah, not at all. So, you know, just from a player perspective, what is that like, maybe mentally as much as physically? I remember going into 2011, and I hadn't been getting a lot of playing time. I think I had maybe 11 caps going into to 2011 World Cup. So, relatively new, very inexperienced. I remember wanting to play so bad in those group games and 
seeing the people on the bench around me getting minutes and me not getting any minutes and just really like questioning my ability. Like, am I not good enough to be on this team? Am I not good enough to play at this level? So questioning that because I wasn't getting that playing time. And so when Rachel Bueller got that red card, I was actually expecting Pia to kind of um, tweak the back line in a way where she wouldn't have to play me. You know, like maybe she moves in Amy LaPel bit as center back or, you know, something like that, kind of just reconfigure it. And I mean, she gave me the nod like maybe two days before the game. And so right there, I was kind of like, whoa, um, I'm, I'm surprised. And so really that game for me was so important in my career because that was the, the game where I finally figured out whether I was ever going to be good enough or if I just, just luckily in that 2011 semifinal against France, who playing very well that tournament, uh, I didn't. I didn't do terrible. So to me, that was a success. Um, a very modest I probably, assessment. <laughs> I mean, I did some good things, did some bad things, but like looking back on it, I think having to go into a tournament or a world cup with that few of caps, with that amount of pressure and for me be, being able to handle it and not completely like crap my pants or ruin it for the team, I think was a real win for me. Um, and I always look back at that game and, and kind of, pinpoint that is the moment where I finally got a little bit more confidence and, and a realization that I could have a future on this team. Yeah. And and then the final, obviously, too, you know, seeing that play out the way that it did. I know talking to a lot of players then and, and you know, even since, I think only about a year ago, talking about this topic a little bit, that uh, there was, what was it like for you? I mean, there seemed to be a lot of sort of mixed emotions and the obvious sort of anger and sadness of losing, but then sort of recognizing what Japan had gone through and what sort of their story was. Was, was that kind of one of the the weirder moments in terms of, you know, being a competitor, but kind of acknowledging that other side? Yeah, I actually, I, I think of it as being really quite beautiful what happened in that we have such a respect for Japan. And I feel like that's also reciprocated. And there was such an understanding of what they had gone through with the tsunami and just how much love their country was sending to their team and how well they were playing and how well they were representing Japan. And so obviously we want to win every single game, but for them to have that kind of storybook ending is really like, it's really lovely. I mean, there's not much more to say. And so like, yeah, of course I wish we would have won 2011, but the fact that Japan did um, like hats off to them. I'm, I can't be too upset about it. And we got, we got our, we got our comeback later anyway. So. Right. Yeah, only about a year later that you, you got the uh, Olympic gold. Is that is that like truly kind of revenge in that sense? I mean, it's Olympics is, is a big deal, but it's not the World Cup in, in some ways. Is it like did you feel like you made up for 2011 in 2015 or did 2012 kind of, you know, at least make that memory kind of fade a little bit? Uh, I mean, 2012 winning the gold helped. Uh, you're right. It, it's not the World Cup. It's not just for women's soccer. And so I think we were all very motivated wanting to win 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it, it also depends on who you talk to. Some people <laughs> hold the Olympics as high or higher than the World Cup, and some people just don't. And so mm-hmm. for me, like, they're, to me, I think they're both world tournaments, and they're both very important, but they are different tournaments. Right, right. So 2015 comes. um you know, obviously, first World Cup title for for you and and kind of this generation. Uh, the the game that I think gets forgotten. There's obviously the quarterfinal where kind of things turned and and kind of clicked. The final was you know kind of this epic display. Um, but that semifinal I think gets forgotten a lot. And they just FIFA just replayed it. I think it was yesterday. Um, and there's a lot of moments in that semifinal. And the one that I think stands out to me is. Um, Something that, that I don't think was even necessarily you on a ball or anything, but, um, obviously the moment with Julie Ertz, Julie Johnson, then, uh, the penalty that, that she gives up, um, which, you know, could have been a red and, and was a yellow and, and was obviously, you know, a, a big moment there. Um, she said after the game that a lot of teammates, and I think she had kind of said, indicated that you were kind of at the front of the line of calming her down because she was, trying not to freak out. She was, I mean, the first major tournament. Um, and I think she said, you know, Becky's my backbone. Um, and I was just curious what that tournament and that relationship was like from your perspective, because at that point, fast forward from 2011, 
you're kind of the veteran there. And, you know, she came onto the scene essentially only a few months really in the, taking that position, that starting role a few months before that World Cup. I think my relationship with JJ in 2015 was really special. I think for her to come on so quickly and kind of cement herself in that back line, um, I never treated her as the new kid on the block. I think right away I, I wanted to treat her as an equal, especially if we were going into a world tournament. I didn't want her in any way to feel like she had to prove anything to me or to anybody on the back line. And I think she really appreciated that because I think people would sometimes say that when she made a mistake, it was like, oh, because she's young or because she's new. And I think a lot of players instead wanted to treat her like, no, that was just a mistake. It doesn't matter how old or young or new. Like, it's just a mistake. And so I think she really appreciated that. And, I mean, we had a great back line in that 2015. That was kind of the the story of that tournament is that we, as not just a line, but even the team, like we were putting in really good defensive shifts game after game after game. And so um, JJ, like, yeah, so when that happened, uh, she was clearly upset. And some players were yelling at her, like, you're fine, you're fine. You know, and then other players were a little bit more uh, consoling. And so I, I remember going up to her and I just kind of like cupped her face and I smiled at her. And I was like, we're going to win this game. And she was like, okay. And then we wound up winning. And I've, I'm not a very, like, decisive person. Uh, and so <laughs> when, when uh, Celia Faisic missed that PK, for some reason, I knew we were going to win the World Cup. I don't know how I knew it, but I absolutely knew it. And I, yeah. I maybe that confidence went to JJ when I told her that, and that calmed her down. I don't know, but she's great, and I'm, I'm so glad that I was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, I think, uh, too, I mean, it was a breakout tournament for her. And, and I think, you know, the entire back line, you met, it was a, it was a record tying, I think, to the minute in terms of a shutout streak for a World Cup, for a women's World Cup. So it was a huge performance from the whole back line. And I thought one of the, one of the greater travesties was that whoever picks these FIFA teams had left you off the, the like <laughs> 22 person all-star team that was like two full teams, which was kind of, Ridiculous, but uh, are there moments that stand out from you that are less obvious from that one? There's the semifinal. Everybody kind of looks at that, certainly looks at the final, but I think to me, you know, the quarterfinal is when things kind of clicked, and, and maybe that was more about the pieces in front of the back four. Um, but but even that group stage was a little bit of a grind. I mean, it felt like from the outside there was, you know, I don't know, not um, – it felt like a grind, I guess, from from the outside looking in, of just kind of trying to make things kind of work, and not everybody was 100% coming into the World Cup. And I mean, what what stands out to you from 2015? The group that we were in in 2015 was a very much a group of death. Like that was a very difficult group. And so I remember sitting. I don't remember where we were, but we saw the draw, and we were just like, "Oh my goodness, here we go!" Because Australia. Had, was like they were not peaking but they were slowly growing to be more and more competitive obviously Sweden who's like we always play Sweden in the group stage and then Nigeria who had been like kicking ass in the African qualifications and so we knew it was tough so that group stage was a grind and then um, it was a little bit easier in those first two knockout stages but we still weren't hitting our stride so like yeah it was a grind um, all because of the competition but also because we weren't finding it the, we weren't finding our stride. We were kind of getting moments of it, but mm-hmm. it wasn't consistent enough. So we were just grinding out these like 1-0 games, 2-0 games with the PK. So yeah, it was that was a tough tournament. Yeah, and I guess if you for, fast forward to to 2019, the complete opposite really. I mean, the 13 yeah. nil against Thailand, um, you know, kind of hit the ground running. And uh, did anything feel different in the the build up there that? that kind of occurred was, I mean, it's a little bit of a different team, obviously, but anything that was different in terms of going into that tournament versus 15? Not, not really anything that was so different. I mean, we were obviously the group, we knew the group was going to be maybe not as difficult, but we then already had in the back of our minds, although we tried not to focus on it, (laughs) the potential of meeting up with France in the quarterfinal. Yeah. Like that was kind of the story that, definitely the media took hold on I but of did. course like yeah. as of course as players were also kind of like whoa that would be quite yeah. the epic quarterfinal yeah that was that was the story that wasn't gonna go away I don't think it was like match day minus seven in France and someone asked whoever got the lucky draw of having to do the press conference about France so <laughs> um, 
I'm sure. Uh, what What are those? I mean, what's the World Cup grind like for you on that? Uh, I, I always have the impression that players are like, it's like having to do the press conferences and that is like the last thing they want to do in a World Cup. Is that fair to say? Uh, I mean, some people, some, I'll say some people, some people find it an, an energy suck. And so they'd rather <laughs> keep that energy for soccer. Other people love it. And yeah. I think, I think maybe you guys saw people were doing quite a bit of the, the media. Cause I think poor high fits. Most of us were like, no, no, Aaron, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're not doing that. So I think you saw a few of the same culprits doing, doing the media for us. So yeah. uh, thank goodness for them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, one one moment I want to ask you about in 2019, um, from a you know just kind of a bounce back perspective, that Spain game. Um, I know in Ronts, which I pronounced ten different ways in the two times that we were there. Um, I, I know you talked about this a little bit post game when it was probably fresh and and maybe hadn't even looked at it, but the the goal given up against Spain, where Alyssa passes it out, you turn, um, you know miscommunication or, or what happens there, but even beyond kind of what happens um, going forward from that, because that's early in a game, you know, even from, from the player perspective, the athlete perspective of um, similarly kind of how do you forget that moment really? And, and how do you kind of go from there within a game? So fortunately we had already scored. And so it just got us level. And so I think had we gone down a goal like that, that completely changes the tactics of the game. Like now we are going for goal that leaves us more open to counterattacks. So luckily it was just level. So basically you're starting the game over again. So really tactics stay the same for me personally. I think through the years I've been with the national team, I think one of the things that my teammates and my coaching staff appreciates about me is that if I make a mistake, it doesn't affect the rest of the game or the rest of the training. Um, I'm very, very willing to take responsibility for the mistakes I made. And I I did that very clearly in that game because I wanted everyone to know that that was on me. And so I can handle that. Like it sucks. And I wish that (laughs) had never happened, but it did. Uh, And so really it's just, okay, you've got to throw that away. And basically you need to do everything possible to make sure your team wins this game and you don't do anything like that ever again. (laughs) And so fortunately, you know, Pino hits those two PKs and we, and we wind up going through, but that was a tough, that was probably one of the tougher matches of the tournament as far as like emotional up and up and down for me. Yeah. I thought that was, I mean, even from a team perspective, that was, um, you know, similar to like, it's hard to forget about a semifinal, but kind of forgetting about that 2015 semi that that Spain games felt like, very much a trap game, especially knowing that um, I'd say the entirety of the world expected a USA France quarterfinal in Paris. So um, I don't know how much that weighed on you all mentally, but um, you know, that game having to get done before it and the way they played, which I would say, was that surprising from your perspective that kind of very possession oriented team came out and, and effectively went for the, the bulldozer effect? Yeah. I mean, we were a little surprised by their tactics, especially because we had played them earlier, I think, in 2019, and they had played completely different. So, yeah, they came out very different. They were very physical, um, obviously still very good in their possession. But, yeah, it was – that was a – talk about a grind. That was definitely definitely the hardest of the, of the tournament, I think, as far yeah. as, like, the not feeling in control of the match. Most of the matches, I, I would say, like, we felt in control. And that one, like, I felt momentum shifted – every few minutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was fun to watch that, that and, and the France, I mean, everything from there. And then, um, you know, England game, you had the big PK save from Alyssa Nair, um, which I think you were one of the players, right. The, the many that kind of crowded her from there that, um, <laughs> yeah, I think I took a minute to be like, Oh, thank God. And then I kind of <laughs> sauntered over and by then she was already pushing everyone away. Right. Like go, go counterattack. Right. So 2019, 2015, I mean, back to back world cups, uh, incredible feat, obviously, you know, how do you, you're a little bit removed from them now. I mean, it's probably something that kind of evolves as you, you know, go through life even. I mean, maybe when career's over, you look back at it, but how do you kind of look at those two and, and what they mean to you and, and even kind of maybe the evolution of the team of, of how this team has evolved on the pitch, but even, you know, 2019, obviously too off the pitch was, um, took on its own life to a degree. Yeah, I would say 2015, like you said earlier, we maybe didn't have 
as big of a following. I think 2011 garnered some like fresh looks at the team and people were like, oh, what an amazing Brazil game. And oh no, they lost in the final. Um, and so the pressure for 2015 was, okay, we haven't won since 99. And so that was the pressure that we felt. And it was purely soccer related. Yeah. Um, and then going into 2019, a lot of happened leading into the tournament. A lot happened at the tournament. And so it kind of took on a, we're, we're playing more than just soccer right now. Mm-hmm. And I think we have the pressure of wanting to be back-to-back champions. We have the pressure of the president tweeting at one of our players um, and a lot of the other things that we were fighting for off the field, like equal pay. And so there were, there were a lot of things that were happening. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was amazing sort of experience, I guess, even from, from sort of my removed position from just kind of the ability to, to obviously juggle that. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how much players actually think about the actual juggle of that. It has to be, you know, I know 2015, the word was bubble which I didn't hear as much in 2019, but, um, you know, the, just the idea of kind of removing yourself, but it's got to be somewhat impossible to like fully remove yourself, right. From, from everything, even if it's. I think some players, especially the younger players deleted social media. And so they weren't getting the news or anything. So they were very much in a bubble. And I think (laughs) some, some of the older players, uh, I think were a little bit more aware of what was being said and what was happening and so I think the younger players took kind of cues from the more experienced players as far as like how to handle certain things. And so if you see Megan Rapino not batting an eye after the president just tweeted at her, uh, you feel a little bit more calm. And so I think, yeah, it was still a bubble. Um, maybe the bubble wasn't as tight, uh, but it was still there. And I think we definitely were all checking in with one another and saying, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Do you need anything? Because people people handle stress in different ways. Uh, right. We're not, you know, immune to to the pressures of the World Cup, and so it was it was important for the players that were doing okay to make to bring along the ones that were kind of struggling. Right. And if you, they were struggling. If they were struggling, yeah, right, right. And you said you're self proclaimed introvert. Um, what what is a World Cup experience like for you? In that sense of like, I mean, even people. I think people don't realize like people listening like a post game at a world cup is admittedly, you know, I mean, I'm on the other side of that, that rope, but it's gotta be just a ridiculous experience to come off a field and an emotional high. And then you've got like a hundred cameras in your face. And um, I mean, what is that world cup experience like from the introverts standpoint? Well, I'll tell you, it's a lot better going into those zones having won the match I mean in 2016 when we had lost it going into that that was that sucks but going into it I mean yeah I I am not particularly fond of interviews or being on tv um and it's just kind of (laughs) yeah exactly um but it's just a responsibility that you have when you're on the women's national team is that we have a lot of eyes on us and so it's Mm -hmm. your duty and your obligation to to represent the team and to do these kind of things and so uh it's in a way it's also I found it kind of fun, I'll, I'll admit, you know, answering questions. Obviously, after the Spain game and all the questions are about giving up that goal, not so much fun, but <laughs> it just comes with the territory. Right. Uh, but yeah, but it, it also, I also kind of look and kind of compare 2019 to 2015 to 2011, how many more journalists are out there, cameras, like people interested in women's soccer, interested in the game that just happened, interested about tactics and not asking bubblegum questions. And so you can just see that the evolution of the game is also being followed by the evolution of the people following the game. That's a, a huge point. Yeah, I know I didn't get to 2011 in person, but um, even from 15 to 19, um, just to kind of feel, even in the buildup to to the World Cup, felt like it was, you know, you could tell that, like what happened in France in 2019, you could kind of feel that that was coming based on kind of coverage in that four to six months ahead of time and maybe even, even further out. Um, well, that's a, a perfect segue in, in one sense, because I wanted to ask you kind of a little bit on just kind of the evolution of the women's game, maybe tactically, especially, um, you know, there were things that I think we saw um, that, that I think players and coaches have talked about, certainly at the World Cup last year and, and kind of in general terms of, um, you know, I think Jill Ellis talked about 2016 and, and even though there was the heartbreak, but as kind of the moment of wake up of like how the how evolved tactics have, have become and, and what it means that, that kind of any team can, not that Sweden is not a, a traditionally great team, but um, that, that the tactics have evolved. Um, you know, you're, 
you've seen it from three World Cup cycles and several, you know, several leagues even. Um, I mean, what is what do tactics look like in the women's game now versus, you know, maybe even a few years ago and certainly when you started your career? Yeah, I mean, they've they've grown so much. And if you just even go to what's required of each position on the field, I mean, I can't tell you how how much responsibility an outside back has now than they did four years ago to eight years ago. And their expectations of, of being a, a world-class defender, but also a world-class attacker. Um, and I think about a center back and how, man, eight years ago, you either were big, you either were fast, or you could hit the crap out of the ball. And how that's really evolved to where center backs are now setting play. And so there's just all these expectations for, for positions now that have changed so much. And then if you talk about 2016 and the way that Sweden kind of held a low bunker against us and how we struggled to break that down, that took us years to figure out how to break a bunker down because we just weren't used to that. We were used to winning on the transition game. Right. And so now all of a sudden we have to, to be very efficient in our organized attack. And so how do you break bunkers like that? How do you combine? Do you go wide, uh, up, back, and through? So you have to learn all these different skills and have all these different skill sets. And then you need the awareness in game now to be able to make those, those decisions in real time. You can't wait till halftime. You have to be able to start solving some things as they come. And so I think that's been a huge evolution of the player too, is just soccer intelligence. Yeah. Is that you can't just have robots on the field anymore. They can do one or two things. Like mm-hmm. you can't just stay wide and cross the ball now. Like you have to be able to know if they're giving you inside channel, you're going to have to make that inside run. And so it's, a lot more is asked of everybody. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you think that's been a benefit on your end in terms of, I mean, you're, I guess, describe you as kind of a cerebral center back, you know, similarly, you know, not huge per se, not lightning fast speed or anything. I mean, certainly, I mean that, I don't mean that negatively by any means, but no, no offense taken. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that kind of thinking aspect of the game, um, maybe, you know, we were talking about 2011 and, and not playing as much. I mean, maybe at that point, 10 years ago, it wasn't as appreciated. But now, and, and I wonder, too, kind of if this mirrors the men's game a little bit. But, um, you know, now that that's maybe more appreciated, do you think, in that position? I, I I certainly hope so. I would say my playing time has definitely reflected that. But I've all always felt that even growing up, I wasn't – the stereotypical center back. And that actually, I think, hurt me in a lot of selections. I was really fortunate that I had Steve Swanson as my U16 coach because I think he saw the evolution of the game before a lot of other people did. And he saw my skill set as being very valuable to a center back, whereas most coaches would be like, she's a center midfielder. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for him to put me back there as early as 16 um, and then to have college to really learn from him, I think I got really lucky. I think had it, the table's been turned and I've gone to a coach that played me at center mid, I would not be having this interview with you because I probably wouldn't have lasted very long. Um, and so I think the evolution has, has helped me because I've always felt that I could set play from a, a lower position, whether it be through dribble or pass. Um, and I'm not a, a center back that really looks long as often as maybe I should. I mean, I should look longer. Um, but I think it's, it's now more appreciated in the modern game center backs that, can do all of those things. Yeah. I, I recall every once in a while, like twice a season on a random summer night that you'd go on like an 80 yard run with Kansas city. And <laughs> oh, yes. there, there were one or two assists in there. I think it was, there's one that sticks out. I think it was in Seattle, maybe like 14 or 15, but um, yeah, Laura never, never let me forget that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about the, the club game and um, you know, mentioning kind of maybe you wouldn't be sitting here. I think you've said that to me in terms of what WPS meant to your career um, in, in 2009, 2010, 2011, uh, when it was around and you were with Washington and then into the Magic Jack days. Um, you know, what that that league, um, I guess what did it mean for you and, and maybe more broadly now that, I mean, you're obviously a veteran, you, you're, you're in these positions on and off the field to, to lead um, and, and kind of, you know, help, I guess, set an example for that younger generation, um, the importance of the league. I know you've spoken about it before, but, you know, what did that mean? And, and maybe to, to the point that 
a lot of folks maybe don't even remember those WPS days. What, what did that mean to you then in terms of where you are now? I mean, the WPS was hugely important to my career. I, I didn't, and I believe this, I would not have made the national team or remade the national team had the WPS not been created. And I didn't have that platform to play against some of the best players in the world day in and day out. And so I had just ended my eligibility and I got called in with the national team. Uh, but I only had two caps and then PO was like, you know, we're not going to bring you in. You're not as well-rounded of a player as we, as we need right now. And so mm-hmm. if I didn't have that league to then train and play and prove myself, it, I just, it wouldn't have happened for me. And I think about I Shannon Box as an, as an example from the WUSA. And then you look at the NWSL and you, you look at a Lynn Williams or a Jess McDonald who really use the league as a springboard to prove themselves. And so right. I just think of, of these moments and these opportunities and these leagues is just so important for players to be able to train day in and day out and to focus on being soccer players. Yeah. And I mean, current sort of hiatus of all sports aside, it has to be nice to be at least up until this happened. I mean, that we had kind of fully gotten rid of the idea of having to talk about, you know, the stability of the league coming into a season. It seemed like we were kind of past that point. I mean, it must be nice to see, Getting there, I mean, hopefully season eight starts at some point in the next few months. But, um, you know, what, what does that mean just to kind of see that evolution in terms of having that platform and, and a, you know, a stable sort of league for the next player, the next generation? It's it's hugely important. And it's, it is really nice not having to talk about <laughs> if there's <laughs> actually going to be a league happening because I, I don't think back on those days fondly during the WPS when we weren't <laughs> sure if we were going to have to find some billionaire backer to, to fund the league. But yeah, and it's it's great to see the evolution of the NWSL as well in that you see more and more teams um, affiliated with MLS or USL teams. So you're, you're using these shared resources like front office, staff facilities. Um, I think as sad as it is, you're also seeing the league kind of cut the teams and the franchises that were struggling. And as much as it hurts my heart, Kansas City had it not, you know, really taken a lot of steps, like it wouldn't fit into this league now. Right. Um, and so I think you're finding teams with owners that, that are really willing to invest in the women's game and they're not seeing it as a, a charity or a cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you must have uh there's gotta be some crazy stories from the magic Jack days too. I'm sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Magic like the- Jack, that was what a weird year. I've I've never seen a topic in 10 plus years of reporting that's always just like, yeah, we kind of tried to forget about that. And like, it's the one thing that I don't think anybody, I mean, there's Ella did a blog at one point years ago. And I think Mm -hmm. that was, that was it, right? Like it's just, is that just like out of mind and you just even bring it up? Yeah. I don't know if there was kind of a, a, a common agreement amongst us just to not talk about it. So that no one else could know how, how wild it really, it really was. I mean, it was a very strange year and the, the national team players were in and out because that was getting ready for 2011 World Cup. And so just a, an, a very odd time. And yeah. I really can't say more about it, but it's, it was, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And then you come into the league and, and I think, um, you know, there was a lot of question, the, the new league, I should say, NWSL, there were a lot of question marks in terms of, you know, who is this Kansas City team? I think that was kind of felt from a player perspective, too. Is that kind of fair that at least like at, immediately when it was announced, there was some question of just like, you know, what is this team compared to some teams that were known entities? Um, you know, you and Lauren Holiday, Lauren Cheney then um, were kind of the the anchor players of, of that team when it started um, and through its years, really. But, um, you know, I, that was, I guess I'm wondering from the perspective of, you know, Vlatko, Vlatko Ananovsky is now the U.S. coach, uh, was FC Kansas City coach then. Um, I think he always, he always reminded us as things sort of played out that he was like, I told you guys, Becky would be the best center back in the world. And I told you that <laughs> Warren Holiday would be the best center man in the world. Um what do you remember from those early days of like working with him and, and FC Kansas city with, you know, FC Kansas city in general? Well, when we had first heard that Kansas city was going to have a team in the NWSL, 
Flacco hadn't been named as a coach yet. So really it was just this like city in Missouri that was going to have a team and, and nobody wanted to go there as far as national team players because they had no idea how the infrastructure, the coaching, obviously where we were going to play. For me, that was like my number one. I wanted to go to Kansas oh, City. Oh, wow. Okay. Also, also because my family's in St. Louis. And so wow. I was like, okay, I'd be, I'd be closer to home. I like Kansas City. I like the Midwest. Um, and so it was my first place that I wanted to go. And I think maybe Nicole Barnhart's uh, first or second choice. Shaney, yeah, I think it was like her third or fourth choice. Um, but the three of us getting allocated there, I couldn't have asked for a better allocation group. Honestly, like goalkeeper, center back, center midfielder, like that's a pretty good spine right there already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the people that were brought in, like Jen Biskowski, Leanne, uh, it was just like we were getting really quality professionals that had played in the WPS. And so we had a pretty solid team going into that first year. And then obviously Blacko like is one of the best coaches ever. So having him at the helm and right away instilling in us this like possession oriented, but technically proficient uh, individual flair allowed, you know, he was just a coach that kind of played to all our best assets. And I think you saw that that first year that we were kind of that surprise team, like people weren't expecting us much of anything and we wind up almost winning the shield. So Mm -hmm. I just, it's, it's kind of like lightning striking. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, those 2014, 2015 titles, that was kind of a, a miniature rivalry with Seattle rain. Um, I mean, what do you, I kind of look at, even that feels like a long time ago. I don't know about for you, but um, you know, I'm curious, do you ever look at that and see those tactics and those teams and look at, I think there's, there's a look, you know, the courage and what they've done over the past three, four years as the flash slash courage are kind of looked at as, maybe the the first true dynasty of sorts in this league or sport even because these leagues haven't really lasted long enough to to have one but how do you think a 14 15 KC would match up against like a 18 19 courage team even tactically yeah i mean it's really interesting because our 14 15 Kansas City team and you could say that for Seattle as well we were so possession oriented and we tried to take that transition out of the game Mm-hmm. And we were successful because other teams weren't as good at being tr- transitional yet. And then you look at the flash and the cur- slash courage and their game is pretty much all transition. And they've gotten so good at it that they can really beat any team, no matter what tactics they play. Um, and so what I feel like when you play a team like the courage now is like, you have to find ways to take the transition out of the game. And so I thought Utah actually, we, matched up decently well with the courage because we were pretty good at doing that. And so it's just a very interesting kind of shift of the tactics from not so long ago to now. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I'd forgotten that was 2018. Utah was the only team that kept North Carolina or didn't lose to North Carolina. Um, <laughs> yeah. So <Ew. laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Small, small victories. Um, well, Wrapping up soon, I mean, I wanted to ask you, um, I was just doing these sort of in in the world that we're in with no live games of kind of just looking back at everything that's happened in the past, um, was doing one of these on this days, and I was looking at the the season opener for 18, which would have been the first Utah game, and it, I had forgotten, I don't know how I could have, the the moment of the uh, the handball that was called on you that was actually like a shot to the face yeah. in Orlando. Um, <laughs> but it just reminded me of like, there's gotta be a few ridiculous moments from this league, which has, you know, I say playfully, but has a lot of ridiculous moments from like refereeing to overall shenanigans, even like in the off season, like, is there something that sticks out to you as just totally ridiculous and, and maybe kind of a fun thing from the wild world of seven or eight years of the NWSL? I, I mean, I think something that really encapsulates the NWSL in the early years where we were all kind of trying to find our footing is I think we won in 2014 and we were given our rings in, in 2015 at the beginning of the season. And on the actual ring, it doesn't say NWSL champions. It says NSWL champions. <laughs> champions. And, and to us kind of just being like, yeah, that's just this is how the league rolls. Let, let's just go with it. They fix that, though, right? They yeah, they, to, they they sent out new rings, but I actually kept the old one because it's just it's just so fun. That's, like, yeah, 
It's that a could nice be a memento. Yeah, it could be a collector's item down the line. The uh, exactly when, when the NWSL is huge, the NSWL, whatever <laughs> champions NWSL, ring. Yeah, rare champions ring. And I think I remember that that 2014 too. It must have been in just kind of the bizarre world of like you guys went to like a some like random chain restaurant to celebrate, right? In like Tequila oh, suburbs yes. of. Like a David yeah, we Buster's went, type of thing, or Buffalo like, Wild Wings. Buffalo Wild Wings, yes. <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings, and it, it was actually like really nice. We had our supporters group had come all the way, obviously our ownership group, and we just had like a lot of friends and family, and so we're all just taking over like half of this restaurant, and it was just like eating wings, drinking, <laughs> drinking some beer. Like it was just like it was perfect for Kansas City. It right. was exactly <laughs> what you would expect from a Kansas City championship party. <laughs> and that's probably one of those things, too, where everybody else is probably looking at you like, who are you guys and what what happened? I, you guys play professional soccer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you taking the time, Becky. Um, you know, good to kind of go through the the years. And I think um, maybe if there's one positive from, from this kind of no games, I think maybe there's at least some – sort of way to look back at, at I think, um, I think sort of that pre 2015, especially a lot of people, um, there's a lot of cool things and interesting things that happen in that era. Obviously, you know, as we talked about here, um, you know, kind of a springboard for your career um, and maybe some people, uh, even like myself, even, I think we've got to look even at 91, 95, all of that. So um, hopefully a, a fun trip down memory lane, nothing, nothing yes. too crazy. Um, very fun thank you for allowing me to date myself (laughs) well thank you for coming on of course my pleasure you've been listening to kicking back a podcast by the equalizer if you like what you heard and we certainly hope you did please go ahead and rate and review this pod the more you do that the easier it is for other people to discover this show and hear compelling stories from some of the most interesting people in women's soccer Keep an eye out for our next episode when we kick it with our latest guest. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough, and the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support, because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.